0: Our scripture reading this morning will be from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. If you're looking that up in your Pew Bibles, that's on page 1094. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. This is the Word of God. After this, he, that's Jesus, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thanks be to God for His Word. Now, for any number of reasons, it's often hard to tell when one should go to the doctor. For parents, it's often hard to tell when should you take your kids to the doctor. For adults, even, it's hard to know. When should I take care of this myself? When should I wait and see? When should I go to the doctor because this problem is getting out of hand? So for example, we might tell ourselves after years of living with knee pain, I'm sure it'll get better soon. I'll just give it some more time. My body will heal itself. Or or dealing with abdominal pain, we might tell ourselves, well, well, I don't want to go to the doctor. He might give me bad news. Or we might even say, well, I just don't have time. If he prescribes me medicine, I just can't afford them. If he tells me to see a physiotherapist, I just don't have the time in my schedule. And what we do for physical problems, sickness and injury and so on, we also do for, for sin problems. Often we're, we're, we're simply blind to sin. We, we don't see what's right in front of us. We have this sin in our lives. It might be obvious to other people, but we just don't see it. We either, we either don't recognize it as sin or else we don't see it at all. Some sins are obvious. We know when we're swearing. We know when we're stealing. We know when we're worshiping idols. But other sins are far less obvious. They're harder to spot. Some sins, in fact, are so acceptable in one culture or another, at one time or another, that they just go unnoticed by ourselves and by everyone else around us. And I can think of any number of examples from history. What one generation counted as normal, the next generation counts as absolutely horrible, abhorrent. Think, for example, of the issues of slavery and segregation in the United States. There were many respected preachers and theologians who are still widely read today because they were brilliant and they knew God and they were insightful and yet these men engaged in the sins of slavery and segregation, men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, spiritual giants. They, they, were, they were slave owners. Even a man like Jay Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary, the founder of, uh, one of the founders of the, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a spiritual giant, just a hundred years ago, was all for racial segregation, at least at least in his youth. These men brilliant scholars, examples to us in in all kinds of areas of life, by all accounts Christians who knew God were blind to these sins that we rightly see as wicked and heinous and glaring and obvious today. But we'd be fools to suggest that what we accept and practice today without even seeing or noticing it, is of such a caliber of sin as well. We'd be fools to suggest that we ourselves, after all the countless generations that have come before us, we at last have outgrown sin blindness. It'd be foolish to suggest it. And and you know, even, even sometimes when sin does show up on our radar, we might feel like dealing with these particular sins would make us uncomfortable. So we push them down. We sweep them under the rug. Dealing with these sins, we tell ourselves, it's just not worth the cost. If we confess our sins, we might lose face. People will think less of us. If we sign up for an accountability partner, we we might be restricting what we can and can't do. We might be signing ourselves up for a lot of very difficult conversations. But you know, if we are ever to effectively fight sin and kill sin, we must be willing to admit, both to ourselves and to God, that we are often blind to sin's presence and even its effects in our lives and in our souls. We need to be willing to admit to ourselves and especially to God that even when we see it, we are far too slow to act. We're like foolish people, refusing to go to the doctor even when it's obviously the right thing to do. And since we are so sinful, a full, uh, full even of those sins to which we are blind, since we are so sinful, we desperately need exactly what this passage of Scripture holds out to us. We need a sin doctor. We need someone who will do what Jesus does in this passage. We need someone who will, first of all, pursue sinners, someone who will, secondly, be present with sinners, and someone who came for the very purpose of saving sinners from their sin. And the first thing that we see Jesus doing in our passage this morning is pursuing. This man, Levi, he doesn't come after Jesus. Jesus comes after Levi. Luke tells us after this he went and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth. And he said to him that as Jesus said to Levi, follow me. And in this first verse, just to start things off, I want to point out two things. First, I want to tell you who Levi was, and secondly, I want to show you what Jesus does. Levi, Luke tells us, Levi was a tax collector. Now when we think of tax collectors, we think of the CRA, the Canadian Revenue Agency. The agency that our government has charged with the responsibility of collecting those taxes that are owed to them. So, So property tax, income tax, estate tax, land transfer tax, all those other taxes, all of these and their collection are overseen by the CRA. And because this agency takes so much of our income and makes it so much more expensive to carry out business and acquire property, there's very little love that we feel toward this particular government agency. But at the same time, we understand the necessity of paying taxes. We appreciate the roads, I'm sure and the military, and the police, and the postal service. We like that our utilities are looked after, and that our, uh, our social programs, at least some of them, exist for those in greatest need. We, we might not like everything that our government spends our money on, but, but, but in principle, I expect that most of us would submit to what Christ tells us to do, to, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I expect that most of us Listen to what what the Apostle Paul says, that we are to respect those leaders, those rulers that God has put in positions of authority over us. And what's true now was true 2,000 years ago. The people living in Galilee and Judea during the time of Christ, they understood. They understood the taxes were necessary. They were not unreasonable people. They understood that many of the benefits they enjoyed were due in large measure to the taxes that they paid. But Levi, the man that Jesus pursues in our passage, Levi was not quite as kind as the CRA. Levi was not simply a tax collector. He, what, he, he was what, what, what is referred to as a tax farmer. He had made a deal with the Roman government in this region around Capernaum and had essentially bought a tax franchise in the area. He'd given the Roman government a great big sum of money and in return had been given the right to collect whichever taxes he saw fit to collect. And as you can imagine, with this contract in hand and with the might of Rome's armies at his back, Levi and his fellow tax collectors no doubt collected far more than they should have. And they gained a reputation for doing that exact thing. Sometimes for taxing the exact same thing three, four, five times. Nobody liked them. They were obvious sinners. This this excessive upcharging of taxes, along with the fact that they, though Jews, were working for the occupying Roman government, this created a great deal of hatred for these tax collectors. They were the scum of society. There, there, there was no one in all of Israel whose sins were quite as obvious as these men. Uh, perhaps a good analogy would be the the, the collaborators in in. In the Netherlands during World War II, these men and women who gave aid to the occupying Nazi forces, welcoming them into the country and helping them to take over and to govern in return either for material gain or for the respect of the occupiers. These collaborators were despised. They were, they were hated. Their error, their sin was obvious to everyone. Or, or, or think today of drug dealers. Those who sell meth or cocaine or or, or fentanyl-laced drugs or other hard drugs who, who poison the very communities in which they grew up, in which they live, causing families to break up, causing rampant poverty, escalating the rates of homelessness, suicide, and death from overdose. We despise these people. We have very little pity for them. Their sinfulness is incredibly, glaringly obvious, the damage they do to the communities in which they grew up is astounding. That's the kind of attitude that people had toward this man Levi. He was despised. He was an outcast of society. He was not granted any of the same rights and privileges as other people were granted under Jewish law. In fact, because of his shameless sinfulness, he was considered to be unclean, Under Jewish law, he was not only rejected by people and their priests and their teachers, but he was rejected by God himself. If you were any reasonable, sensible, respectable person, you would never want Levi to join your church. Not a chance. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Because notice again, Levi doesn't come looking for Jesus. Jesus goes looking for Levi. Now, it might have been that Levi had been reconsidering his life as a tax collector. It could have been that the corruption and the sin that he was involved in was weighing on his heart. It could very well be that he wanted to go see Jesus. But what would a man like Jesus want to do with a man like Levi? What were the chances that this famous preacher would want to have anything to do with this infamous tax collector? Levi wasn't about to come to Jesus. At best, he might have done what Zacchaeus does. He might have watched Jesus from afar. He might have climbed up up a tree to, to see Jesus far off. And maybe you know people like this. They would never step foot inside of a church building. They feel they're just too too dirty, too defiled to even enter into this auditorium. They just don't think they've cleaned up their act enough to come. And maybe for some of you, you're all too familiar with how Levi felt. Maybe you feel some attraction toward Jesus. Maybe you're convinced that Jesus is just the person who could save you from whatever's plaguing you, but you're just not sure if you can come to him. Well, listen. He's coming to you this morning, right here, right now. He is coming to you, and he's telling you exactly what he told Levi. He's telling you exactly what he tells every single sinner in the world. He's telling you to follow him. And this is one of the things that's just so wonderful about Jesus. He doesn't wait until we've cleaned up our act. He doesn't wait until we've learned all the right things. He doesn't wait until we've matured. No, he comes to us in the middle of whatever mess we're stuck in. And let me tell you, he knows your mess better than you do. He comes to us in the middle of whatever mess we're stuck in and he he, he tells us to come and follow him. He doesn't say, clean yourself off and then come on. He doesn't say, get rid of that and then come follow me. No, nothing like that. Now, now he he doesn't excuse our sin, nothing nothing like that at all. But if we come to him, you know what he does? He, He gets rid of our sin. He gets rid of our sin, and and, and every excuse we ever had to not come to him is gone in in an instant. And so what does Levi do? How does he respond with Jesus pursuing him, leaving everything? He rose and followed him. See, he hears the voice of the good shepherd, and this sheep cut and bruised and tangled up in so many bad decisions and wrong choices and sins He rises and leaves everything and follows Jesus. Nothing will hold him back. Not his job, not his sin, not his wealth, not his influence. He leaves it all behind and follows Jesus. And you understand what what a predicament this puts him in. See, I've told you already that he is despised by Jews. And if he leaves this job, then neither Gentile nor Jew will ever hire him again. Peter and John, they they kept some respectability when they followed after Jesus. They could go back to their fishing boats, but Levi, Levi has made a choice here that will impact him for the rest of his life. And if this Jesus thing doesn't work out, Levi's going to have no recourse. He's put all of his eggs in this one basket. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And not only does he try, does he not try to hide the fact that he's leaving his job and he's going to be following this rabbi wherever he goes, but he does everything he possibly can to make sure that everyone else knows. And you can imagine how many of his friends might have uh, what what many of his friends might have said about him. Oh, oh, well, Levi's found religion, has he? Some of his friends might have mocked him. Some some might have made fun of him. Some might have been mystified. Some might have been offended. Oh, oh, I see how it is. You think you're holy, do you? But some of his former friends might have been genuinely interested. See, these, these were Levi's friends, these, these people that he invites into, into this large company of tax collectors and others. These people were his friends from his old life. For you realize, don't you, that in the, instant, in the instant that he followed Jesus, Levi was born anew. The instant that he followed Jesus, he entered into a new life. The old man was dead, and the new man had come to life. Levi was no longer who he had been mere hours before. These were friends from his old life, but he seemed to wish that, that they could join him in his new life, that they could join him in his following after the Savior. And you know, it's almost taken for granted among us that, that those who have most recently been brought from, from sin to righteousness, from death to life by the mighty power of Jesus, those are the people who will have the most missionary zeal. Those who have most recently been brought out of sin will go back into those spaces they once inhabited and and save those who are in the same sins that once enslaved them. It's the former abortion doctor or nurse who is the most pro-life. It's the former LGBTQ activist who's the most insistent on the Lord's claims to every single area of life. And no one is more interested in the salvation of tax collectors than a man who was once caught up in that exact same crowd. And so Levi throws this great big party in Jesus' honor. Jesus has saved him, and Levi's saying, everything I have now belongs to Jesus. And this party is no small affair. It's a great big feast with the best of foods, celebrated in the most opulent, the most luxurious manner. It's a reflection not only of Levi's desire to have his friends saved, but also a reflection of the joy that's been ignited in his heart. He's rejoicing. That's why he's spending all this money on Jesus. And in the middle of this crowd of sinners, who do we find? Well, we find Levi. But not just Levi, also Levi's Lord, Jesus, right there in the middle. And you know, this is no small thing. For a law-abiding Jew, this was absolutely scandalous not just because these were people of poor moral failure, but, uh, but, but, but uh, a poor moral character, but, but because according to the traditions of their fathers, according to the opinions of the most learned of their scholars, these people were unclean, and they would make you unclean. God's law in the Old Testament placed a great emphasis on personal holiness. God said to his people, you be holy, for I am holy. But not only on holiness, but also on ceremonial cleanliness. If a man or a woman had touched anything that was unclean, like a dead body or an unclean animal, they themselves would become unclean. And if they, now in a state of uncleanliness, touched anything else, that would also become unclean. And the uncleanness would spread like wildfire. And so uncleanness meant that you were unable to come near to the community of God's people. But more than that, uncleanness meant that you were unable to come near to God. The Israelite nation had been called to be a nation of priests, showing the world that God demanded absolute perfection, that what was holy and unclean could not be in his presence. And yet, what does Jesus do? He does the unthinkable. He breaks every single rule of polite society, and he, he not only meets with these people, but he, he eats with these people. Not because it couldn't be avoided, but because he wants to eat with them. He wants to be with these people who are the most wretched and detestable human beings in the entire country. No self-respecting rabbi or teacher would have been caught dead in this company. But this place this place of uncleanness has in dramatic form become a place of rejoicing. Because Jesus is there. And so the house is filled with joy, but in stark contrast to this joy and celebration, we have a gang of grumblers gathering outside. Now, to understand why they were grumbling outside a place of such celebration, you need to know a little bit about the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees were people that looked a lot like us. They, they believed in the God of the Bible. They believed that everything they read in the Bible was true. They believed that God is the creator of the world and the God of Israel demanded to be taken seriously. And so these Pharisees took God very, very seriously. And that's good. That's very, very good. But, But the issue was that they also took themselves very, very seriously. They were what Augustine would later describe as, as people folded in on themselves. They, 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 they took themselves and, and their opinions and their traditions and the smallness of their world and their, and their fathers very, very seriously. In fact, in, in their zeal to take God and His law as seriously as possible, they had lost sight. They'd become blind to the mercy of God and of the love required by the law. But the whole pharisaical movement had come, had come around because people wanted to take God's law seriously. But what in fact ended up happening was that, was that, was that, was that the Pharisees, instead of, instead of raising the standard of the law of, the law of God, they, they raised their own standards alongside it and in effect lowered the standard of God's law. They began to build these walls around the good law of God to keep people from coming even close to breaking any of God's commandments. But these walls that they, that, 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 that they built up around God's law to keep people from breaking God's commandments also kept people from God himself. You see, their devotion, their devotion and their zeal were more to their own ways and opinions and traditions than to the way of God. It was they and not God who had taught people that tax collectors and other sinners were unclean and not to be associated with. It was they who had come up with this idea that tax collectors and other sinners did not need to come into the presence of God, but needed to stay outside of the presence of God. And so when they see Jesus, this new rabbi on the scene, not only talking with, but partying with tax collectors and other sinners, you can understand that they would be upset, and so they grumble. But notice they don't grumble at Jesus. They don't grumble at Jesus here. They grumble at Jesus' disciples. And what they say to the disciples is essentially this. Hey, Peter, Andrew, J- James, John, you, you, guys, you guys know better, don't you? You guys know better. Jesus might be a rogue rabbi so we'll excuse him for the moment but you guys know better than to associate with tax collectors and sinners. What they were trying to do was to convince Jesus' disciples that their own pharisaical opinions were of higher worth and value than the commands of Christ. And it's worth spending some time looking at their reactions to the graciousness and mercy of Christ. Because, like I mentioned, their sin is a sin that we can very easily slip into. In fact, it's a lot easier than you might ever dare to think, particularly if we've grown up in church and grown used to church. See, the mark of a Pharisee is is not just legalism, but a coldness toward God. The Pharisee looks for all the world like an orthodox believer he confesses all the right things he He holds all the right opinions. He does all the right things. The Pharisee comes to church twice each Sunday. He sings the songs and prays the prayers. He always learns a lot from the sermons. He's always taken notes. He doesn't swear. He doesn't talk back to his parents. He doesn't sleep around or drink too much. He's a good kid, an exemplary father, a member of the school board, a member of the local business association, and even, God have mercy on us, even a member of the consistory. He checks all the boxes, he looks good, but his heart is stone cold, and therefore he, he grumbles. Even when people are being brought to Jesus, he grumbles. We don't know what's going through the disciples' minds at this point. They don't respond. Jesus does. These these wolves have come up and they're threatening Jesus' sheep. So he comes up as the good shepherd and fends them off. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what he's saying is rather clear here. Don't you see all these sick people? Don't you guys see all these sinners and have pity on them? You guys, the, 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 the scribes of the Pharisees, they were Israel's doctors. But they had refused to tend to those given to their care. They had, they had said to these tax collectors and sinners, you know what, you are too sick, get out of the hospital, I'm not going to treat you. They had done what God had done condemned others for doing, they had bandaged the wounds of God's people lightly. They had put band-aids over bullet holes. But the scribes of the Pharisees, the greatest and most prestigious teachers in all of Israel, they were blind to the need that stood right in front of them. And as soon as a rabbi began doing the only sensible thing, as soon as Jesus began to call these sinners to repentance, they they, they bristled at his unprofessionalism, the lack of polish, the lack of self-respect, but they failed to realize that the very reason he was there, knee-deep in the muck of other people's broken lives, was because he, unlike them, was not concerned with his own reputation. He had come for this very reason, to call people to repentance. And you see at this point, you see, don't you, the irony of the whole situation. See, Levi's sin was obvious. Levi's sin was was like a tumor growing out of his forehead. The sins of the Pharisees, though, they were less obvious. They were like like holes in their sides covered over by the respectable bandages of legalism, propriety, and, and respectability. But the sad truth is that both problems were just as deadly Now you might be here this morning as the most respectable person in your family, the most wealthy person in your circle of friends, the most senior member of whatever board you might sit on, but if you don't see your sin and run to your Savior, then hell will suck every last ounce of respectability out of you, while every sinner you've ever spent your life despising will be up there in heaven more glorious than the angels. I understand uh, repentance is never easy for those who are respectable, but it's what Christ calls us to as much as He calls to any obvious sinner. And don't let the fact that you are a member of this or any other church, that you've been a member for a very long time, stop you from seeing your need for Christ. Because whether you want to admit it or not, you are sick. You are sick and you need the only one who can save you from the coldness, the deadness, the hardness of your heart. The truth of the matter is this. Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, and if Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, then Jesus has come into the world to save me, because that's that's who I am. That's what I am. And the more we come to understand ourselves, the and and the depths of our hearts and the wickedness that is found there, the more we come to know that this Jesus is exactly who we need. But it could be that there are some here this morning who have lost sight of that fact. We know rationally, yes, we've sinned against God. We know rationally, yes, God has a perfect standard and will judge those who sin against Him, but our sin doesn't frighten us like it should. We don't see our sin and hate it like we should. And we may comfort ourselves with the idea that, well, you know, the reason I don't worry about my sin is because Jesus has taken care of it. We might try to convince ourselves that the reason our consciences don't bug us is because our consciences are clear. Jesus has done away with our sins, and yes, Jesus does away with sins, but that is cold comfort. If Jesus has, in fact, done away with your sin, then your conscience should not be unfeeling towards sin, but tender, tender. You should not be less aware of your sin, you should be more aware of your sin. I've had old saints come to me, people in their 80s and 90s, and say, you know what, I I feel my sin more now than I ever did. And it's not because they're less holy, it's because they're more holy. It's not because Jesus has gone away from them, it's because He's come near to them and has given them the mercy of seeing the sins that they need to be rid of. A Christian should not be less aware of his sin. A Christian should be more aware of his or her sin. And then the same hatred of sin that drove Jesus to make company with wicked people should also drive you with the aid of the Holy Spirit to go down into the depths of your heart to face whatever depravity you may find there, to name it and to nail it to the cross. Because if you are a sinner, and you are, then Jesus is coming to you today and he is calling you to repentance. He is calling you to get rid of your stony, cold heart and to trade it in for a life, a heart that's full of life, a heart of flesh, because Jesus really can make you well. Because Jesus, you understand, Jesus became less respectable than anyone else in the entire world. Jesus, who was, who, who, who had scorn heaped on him by people, was also cast out of the presence of God for our sakes. And once you understand what Jesus has done, you will understand that there's only one reasonable thing for you to do as well. To come Him, to come to Him, to hear His voice, and to follow Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that if our hearts are not troubled by our sin, that You would have mercy on us and trouble our hearts. Help us to see our sin. Help us to see our need for repentance and our need for Jesus. And then, Father, comfort us with the fact that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He has not come for those who are respectable and those who can take care of themselves, but He has come for those who admit that they need Him. And so, Father, give us humility. Give us Jesus. And give us joy in His presence. We ask this in His beautiful name. Amen.